you would, look with me in Philippians chapter 2. Apostle Paul writes, now we're looking at verses 9 to 11, but for context, he says in verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, that is, a thing to be taken advantage of, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, There was no subtraction of his deity, his divine attributes. There was no transformation. It was an addition. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed On him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, we see here that when we confess Jesus as Lord, it is to your glory. And we confess him as Lord by the Spirit. We worship the triune God this morning, Father, Son, and Spirit. And Father, I pray as we come to this exalted text about the exalted King, that your Spirit would work that exaltation in our very hearts. We have been raised up with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly places, and yet so often our thoughts towards him are puny. They're not exalted thoughts, and we pray that you would redeem, sanctify those thoughts, those affections towards him today so that we might increasingly come to understand what it means that he is Lord over our lives and over our church. We ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. All of us have experienced someone uh, who gives us or does an act of grace and benevolence to meet a need in our lives. It it perhaps required that person to condescend, that is to go lower, and sacrifice something that they are, that they have, in order to meet that particular need. And in so doing, it transformed our disposition towards them. Perhaps we were cold, we were indifferent, or perhaps we didn't even love that person or like that person. And that act fundamentally transformed our disposition towards that person. Rich Wingo, you've heard me tell many stories about Rich Wingo because he was a mentor of mine at the University of Alabama. He was one of my coaches, and he was instrumental in my walk with God, in my conversion. Well, he called me on my 50th birthday about two weeks ago, and it meant the world to me. He called and left a message. I called him back, and on the message, he said, BP, he talks like Clint Eastwood, except he's tougher than Clint Eastwood. He said, BP, you're old and pathetic. Zach words, that's how coaches talk to you. I called him back. And in tears, I was able to thank him for how he potentially, potentially compromised 
his career as a football coach to advocate for me to the head coach, Bill Curry, and the defensive coordinator, Don Lindsay. He felt that I wasn't being given just treatment with regard to my playing time. And so he fought, he advocated on my behalf at great personal expense. And I will forever love him for that. And I know that many of you have testimonies of people who advocated for you at personal expense. And all of these examples are just mere shadows of the sacrificial advocacy of the Son of God shown by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, last week we saw in 70 short English words, Paul sum up the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a life of advocacy for us and our salvation. Pro nobis, the Latin for for us. It's a beautiful phrase. And what Paul sets forth is a monumental descent. An infinite descent, if you will. I use that word infinite intentionally because by definition, the distance between something that's infinite and something that is finite is an infinite distance. Christ's status before his coming in human flesh, before his hypostatic union, his status was an infinite status. He is the eternal, he was and is the eternal son of God. But his post-birth human status is and was finite. And so his incarnation was an infinite descent. As the great Puritan John Flavel writes in a way only Puritans can write, for the sun, S-U-N, to fall from its sphere and be degraded into a wandering atom, for an angel to be turned out of heaven and be converted into a silly fly or worm, there has been no such great humiliation. For they were but creatures before. The distance between the highest and the lowest species of creature is but a finite distance. The angel and the worm dwell not so far apart. But for the infinite, glorious creator of all things to become a creature is a mystery exceeding all human understanding. And we saw last week the pinnacle from which the Son of God descended. Infinite glory in the presence of the Father and the Spirit. And we saw the depth to which he descended. The lowly servant hung on a Roman cross. Now keep in mind, if it took an infinite distance to atone for our sins, which contextually includes pride, selfish ambition, conceit, and divisiveness. We see that in this chapter then it follows that these things, these sins are infinitely offensive to God. And so the incarnation of Christ is the measure of God's hatred of these things. 
And thankfully, though, he did not remain in that state of humiliation. The humiliation of Christ was not the final word. It's what we looked at last week. Today, we see the final word on things. It's the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, we see the exalted pinnacle pinnacle to which the Son of God ascended. Now, the term that is used among theologians, it's a very important term, we sang about it this morning, is the exaltation of Christ. And why is Paul showing us this? Again, do not lose the context. Context matters. A text without a context is a pretext. Paul is addressing divisiveness in the body. Of course, that divisiveness extends beyond the body into into marriages, into, into the workplace, wherever you might live out your life. And the reality is, when we are divisive, we are demonstrating that we are too exalted in our hearts. And by definition, when we are exalted in our hearts, Christ is not exalted in our hearts. And so Paul gives us a vision of the glory of God in the exaltation of Christ that's intended to foster gospel humility. In other words, if Christ is exalted in our hearts, in our affections, in our perspective all things of things, we will be, by definition, humbled. And humility is the necessary ingredient for unity. Unity in a church, unity in a family. Now, there's two phases of Christ's exaltation. There's a past phase, a past event, and there's a future event. In verse 9, we see the past aspect of this exaltation. We see God's past exaltation of the king. King Jesus. Look with me in verse 9. He says, In light of the fact that Christ has humbled himself to the point of death and the death of the cross, and on that cross, Christ satisfied God's just demands on sin by taking God's wrath in our place. Therefore, verse 9, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name... That is above every name. And so the same principle that Jesus laid out constantly in his ministry. For instance, Matthew 23, 12, where he says, He who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself before God will be exalted. We see it ultra applied to Jesus here. Now, the gospel call is not to be like Jesus. There are some who confuse the gospel and say the gospel is to be like Jesus. They will say the way you ascend to heaven, the way you receive favor from God is to be like Jesus. That's not the gospel call. The gospel call is not to be like Jesus. The gospel call is to be in Christ by faith. But the abuses of this call to imitate Jesus shouldn't blind us to the fact that Scripture does call believers, once they've been converted to Christ, to seek to be like Him. In fact, it's a desire that will begin to be birthed in you by the Spirit. And you see this constantly in the New Testament. 
For instance, in Ephesians 4, Paul is, is admonishing the believers to, to forgive one another, to, to, to refuse to be bitter towards one another, to love one another. And he says this, be kind and compassionate to one another. Just as in Christ, God forgave you. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love just as Christ loved you and gave himself up for you. See, Paul says Christ's own example of love is the example we're to follow. In 1 Peter 2, verse 21, he's speaking about the suffering church, and he says that Christ suffered for you as an example. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, he is admonishing the believers to give sacrificially to the ministry, to the kingdom. And he says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich for your sake, he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. And so Paul appeals consistently to the example of Christ. Peter appeals to the example of Christ. Yes, the ground of our salvation is the finished work of Jesus. Jesus alone. As our covenant head, fulfilling the terms of the law, going to the cross, taking the wrath that we deserve, being raised from the grave for our justification. But now, an evidence of our salvation, the fruit of our salvation, is that we now long to be like Christ. Now, the point in context here, of course, is that no one truly humbles himself before God without being exalted. By God. That's what Paul is saying. True humility often means, in this world especially, that you, you feel like you're disappearing. Especially even in the ministry world where it seems that so many people are out to make a name for themselves. You feel sometimes that you're, you're just unimportant. That you're not visible. And, and Paul, I think, embraces that perspective. Uh, Paul reminds us here that true humility is never forgotten by God. And it's one thing to be exalted by men. It's a whole other thing to be exalted by the true and living God. When men exalt you, it's always temporary. And it's based on today's works. You have performed for the day, and therefore sinful, volatile men will exalt you for the day. But it's just temporary, and it's works-based. I was reminded of that in our prayer group last Monday night. We were praying through 2 Corinthians 8, and we came to a, one of my favorite verses on evangelism, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 18, where Paul writes of this brother who is famous in all the churches for preaching the gospel. Now, Paul is commending this guy. He is, it says he was famous in all the churches for preaching the gospel. But we don't know who he is. He's the anonymous famous guy. That's how vain human fame is. And yet there's a difference between God's exaltation of us and his exaltation of his son. This is seen by this verb that Paul uses here. It's the only time it's used in the New Testament. It says that he highly exalted him. It's a compound word. The prefix is hupair. It, it, it literally means above, to exalt above. 
You could translate this to super exalt, to highly exalt. So what is Christ's exaltation? We've been using that term. What is it? We sang this morning. He is exalted. The king is exalted on high. What is Christ's exaltation? His exaltation is his rising from the dead on the third day. Resurrection. His ascending to heaven. Ascension. His his sitting at the right hand of God the Father. His session. The king in session. And his coming in the future to judge the world on the last day. His consummation. And so the exaltation of Christ is his resurrection, his ascension, his session, and his future consummation. The exaltation of Christ is the universal and the public banishment of everything that was incognito about King Jesus. We saw last week he came incognito in his state of humiliation, but not in his exaltation. And that's what behind what Paul is getting at when he says, God has bestowed on him the name. I love that. Now, there are a whole host of names and images that are used of Jesus. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is the son of David. He is I am. We see images like he is the the true vine. He is the door. He is the way, the truth, the life. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the good shepherd, the chief shepherd. He's all these things. But here, the father bestows on him a new name. That is completely connected to his exaltation. It's a name that reflects what he's achieved as the God-man. And what he has accomplished and who he is now as the God-man. Seated at the right hand of the Father. In other words, he's exalted not only as God of very God. It's more than just his pre-incarnate glory being restored to him. But as the image-bearing son... Who finally fulfills the trial and the commission that's been given to him as the covenant head of God's people. Remember, God created Adam as our representative. And God created Adam to be a vice king, to rule, to take dominion. That's kingly language. He went AWOL. But now the last Adam has come. And he has kept the terms of the covenant that God made with Adam. And so now in the God-man, Jesus Christ, who's fully God and fully man, God rules and man rules in one person. It's a kingdom diarchy. This name that has been bestowed on him is that of the messianic king. Fully God, fully man, one person. And yet so few recognize that reality. We do, by grace, by God's regeneration and His work of the Spirit, giving us regeneration, illumination. But many don't. But they will. 
They will. They will in the last phase of that exaltation. Remember, the last phase is his consummation. And that brings us to verses 10 and 11. We've seen his past exaltation. And now in verses 10 and 11, we see his future exaltation. Notice with me in verse 10. So that, he's been given that name above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. What is he saying there? Every human being who's ever walked. And even the angels that have rebelled against him, including the devil. And every tongue confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now Christianity was not invented by the Apostle Paul. Do you know there's been books that have proposed that? They're demonic. Christianity was not invented by the Apostle Paul. What Paul recognizes by by the Spirit of Christ is a mystery has been revealed, a mysterion. That those promises, those hopes that have been laid out in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, have been fulfilled in this person, the God-man, Jesus Christ. In fact, we see... An example of that here. Paul sees the exaltation of Christ as a fulfillment of one of the great hopes in Isaiah. In in fact, it's Isaiah 45. In Isaiah 45, four times. This is one of the most important chapters in the Bible. Most important chapters in the Old Testament. Do you know that Isaiah is the most quoted prophet? Of all the prophets in the Old Testament, he's the most quoted prophet. And Isaiah 40 to 48 is the most quoted section of the Old Testament. It's a very vital part of the Old Testament. Four times in Isaiah 45, Yahweh affirms, I am the Lord and there is no other. I am the Lord and there is no other. Verse 5, verse 6, verse 18, and then... In verse 22. And on the fourth time that he says, I am God, in that particular case, and there is no other, which is a pronouncement of his sovereignty and his exclusivity, we have these words. Verse 23. By myself I have sworn... From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. That's Yahweh speaking. In fact, the verse just prior to that, he says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. God is speaking and he says, Turn to me. Isaiah applies that text to Yahweh. And Paul says, this is fulfilled in the exalted Son of God, Jesus Christ. But don't think for one minute that Paul is advocating universalism. He's been trained well. (laughs) Universalism teaches that in the end... Everyone will be saved. That's not what Paul is saying. 
In fact, there are some who teach, have taught historically, that even the devil will be saved in the end. Origen taught that. God's just going to restore everything to the point where every rebel will be saved in the end. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says that if you're going to be saved, you have to come through repentance and cognitive faith in Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. He said that himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. In Acts 4, he says, there is no other name under heaven by which one can be saved than Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus is the only one who's taken the wrath of God. He's the only one who's been raised bodily from the grave. Which means he's not one of many ways. He's the only way. In fact, if you notice in verse 24 of Isaiah, right after saying, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall bear allegiance, swear allegiance, he says, only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength, to him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. All those who were incensed against Yahweh, against God, and in this case, the exalted Christ, in that day will be ashamed. That's judgment language. And so what Paul is saying, what Isaiah is saying, is that every knee is going to bow. Some will bow worshipfully. Others will bow like a defeated enemy against a conquering general. They will bow out of compulsion, but they will bow. Paul is saying, Isaiah is saying, Jesus Christ has the last word. He will be completely vindicated in that day. Right now, there are certain parts of the, of the country, they're trying to outlaw the Bible. Y'all heard about that? that I, don't, I don't sweat over that one second. Because one day, there will be a universal confession that He is Lord. But it will not be universal salvation. So let's bring this to a close by looking at a few implications of this glorious passage. First of all, the exaltation of Christ proclaims the present reality of a reigning Lord and King. It proclaims that Jesus Christ, the King, lives and rules in that forever. So no matter what happens in our culture, no matter what happens in our country, no matter what happens in D.C., no matter what happens in our world... He will not and cannot be dethroned. He is permanently seated at the right hand of the Father until he returns to consummate. Upon which every knee, every scoffer will bow. And every believer will bow. Will bow. One day the Lord's enemies will all be made a footstool for his feet. You know what the most quoted verse in the Old Testament is? It's on the cover of your 
bulletin. Psalm 110, verse 1. It's used 38 times in the New Testament. You think it's important to the New Testament writers? The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's a beautiful truth. And that's why we don't sweat when we read the newspaper or turn on the news. Until that day, his rule and reign is supremely expressed in his transformation of enemies of God into friends and sons of God. That accounts for our presence here today. The fact that you're sitting here 2,000 years after a man from Nazareth came on the scene is evidence that he is ruling at the right hand of the Father. Our salvation is the evidence of that. Secondly, there is a way of life which bears the hallmark of divine approval. Paul has been laying that out in Philippians 2. He says, this is the Christian life. It's making yourself of no reputation. Trusting God to exalt you in due time. Let God handle the consequences of your humbling yourself before others. You say, well, that person's going to get away with their behavior. You don't worry about that person. Your responsibility is to humble yourself before God. Oh, if every couple, every spouse in a marriage could live that out. If every brother and sister could live that out in the local church, we would be the most unified force in the history of the world. So that's the question. Has the, the life of Christ, the ministry of Christ, had an impact on you in that way? Has it made you more humble-minded? Let me get more specific. Would people consider you a person of gratitude and thanksgiving? Would, they be able, would the preacher with truth serum on the day of your funeral be able to say... This man, this woman, was one of the most grateful people I've ever known. Are you a contented person? Contentment is the mark of humility, that you're trusting God for your circumstances and for your location and for the relationships around you. Are your relationships known for their peace and their unity? Is there a stillness, a quietness, a rest in your soul? Those are all the fruits of humility. Thirdly, as we hear of God's pleasure in exalting His Son and of the Son's pleasure in extending the glory of God the Father, we get a glimpse of our destiny. There's coming a day when my love for you will not be tainted by selfish ambition and conceit. And your love for me will not be tainted by selfish ambition and conceit. That's the late language that Paul uses earlier in chapter 2, isn't it? There's coming a day when our love will be perfected towards one another. And that should be a motivation to seek to have our selfish ambition replaced even now. By selfless love for one another. Grounded by the humility of the gospel. Fourth. If the father. 
exalts Jesus Christ to the highest place, and he has, he will deem any lesser honor of Christ as intolerable. And here's a key way to determine whether your heart's in tune with God. What are you doing with his son right now? And I'm speaking, let's first of all speak to the Christians. It's easy in our world where Christianity doesn't cost us a whole lot to say Jesus is Lord of my life. Is he? Is he king when you're in your bedroom and the door is closed and you have a computer screen before you? Is he king? Is he exalted in your life when no one's watching? And then it's interesting to hear these polls where large, large percentages of people claim to want to go to heaven when they die. Very few say they don't want to go to heaven. But here's the question. Do they really want to go to heaven? Because heaven is going to be about the glory of God in the face of the Son. If that's not your idea of heaven now, you won't enjoy heaven. John Piper in a, a book called God of His Gospel. I read this 10, 12 years ago. I've never forgotten it. The critical question of every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you've ever had on earth, And all the food you ever liked. And all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed. And all the natural beauties you ever saw. All the physical pleasures you ever tasted. And no human conflict or any natural disasters. Could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? And the exaltation of Christ preaches to us. That he will be there. Front and center. It's a very sobering thought, isn't it? Fifth. And finally. This text reminds us of the limits set for evangelistic opportunity. When Jesus returns, it will be the day of accounting, not the day of opportunity. And those who've held Jesus at arm's length in this present life, they're not going to love him all of a sudden in that day. They will be appalled. They will confess he is who he claimed to be. He's Lord, he's king, but they won't all of a sudden love him. If you hold him at arm's length now, you will hold him at arm's length then. That's one of the reasons, by the way, and I realize this is a distasteful doctrine in our age. But it's a true doctrine. Hell is eternal. And it's not just your soul being 
all of a sudden made extinct. It will be a conscious suffering. A conscious judgment. Now, why is that? Well, first of all, our sins are against an infinite being. All right? So we've spoken about that. But there's a second reason. Hell will be eternal. In hell, you don't stop sinning. You're not all of a sudden a lover of God. In fact, the the grace that has restrained you from expressing the fullness of your depravity in this life will no longer be there. It's a horrifying thought. But make no mistake, you will bow the knee. So my question as we close, have you bowed the knee to King Jesus? The question is not whether you will bow the knee. The question is when. When will you bow the knee? Now I realize you can't all of a sudden work yourself into a frenzy where you love Jesus. But you can be sufficiently warned where you're sobered by the warning. And here's what I want you to do. If you're sobered by that thought and you recognize I can't change my heart. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to cry out to God. And I want you to cry out to him that by his spirit, he would show you the glory of the son of God right now. That he would show you about his humiliation for sinners. How he took on flesh and blood. That he might obey and suffer as a man for sinners like us. That he might take the judgment of God for sinners like us. And then I want you to ask the Spirit to show you, to illumine you to the glory of the exalted Christ. Who did not remain in a tomb, but was raised bodily and exalted to the right hand of the Father. Where he rules and reigns in all glory today. Ask God the Spirit to show you that. Give him eye, give your eyes new eyes to see that. New affections. And then I want you to flee to him. I want you to embrace him by faith. I want you to recognize that your sins are offensive to God. And I want you to lay those sins down and embrace the Son by faith and be saved. Bow the knee today. Confess Christ as Lord today. And if you will do that, the Bible says, no matter what you have done in the past, who you've been, what you've done, what you've said, what you've thought, no matter what sins you have committed in your past or even present, your sins will be forgiven. Paul is preparing God's people for that day. But he also recognizes that not everybody he writes to is saved. And so this is a message to both the believer and the unbeliever. To the believer, we're called to humble ourselves, just like Christ humbled ourselves. Trust God with your humility. 
in the church, no matter how bad that person is driving you crazy, you humble yourself. No matter how bad your spouse is treating you, you humble yourself. No matter how bad your coworker, your boss is treating you, you humble yourself. You let God handle the, the fruit of that. And if there's anyone here today that's never trusted in Christ, my prayer is today you will bow the knee and confess him as Lord. That's Paul's word to us. Let's pray.